calling on humans. This is a distress call. If there was another way, some easier way, I would take it. But there is no alternative. What really exists, according to quantum mechanics, is immensely richer than the things we can actually observe. It is the essence of a collective crisis. So we, we can't just respond through individual shopping decisions. We have to respond through bold collective action. I think that when we talk about race, we tend to focus on individual acts of prejudice. Unfortunately, the issue of race, if we understand it, is a lot more insidious. And it takes a lot more of a historical view to understand the difference between individual bias and structural racism and privilege. We should understand we have not inherited this earth from our ancestors. We have borrowed it from our children and grandchildren. So it is our dharma, it is our duty to protect and conserve the planet Earth. And I love all people, rich or poor, but in those particular positions, I just don't want a poor person. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? There's a good chance that most of your users are already on Facebook, and for the ones who aren't, they probably will be soon. <laughs> our society is run by insane people for insane objectives. So I might do the welcome and then you can do the tagline and all that this oh, week. Oh, wow. <laughs> you see, this is why we never have the energy. You're all stretchy and sleepy. <laughs> no, you, I'm Then you complain that, that we're all... Uh, I'm building it. Oh, I'm building energy. God. Uh, what was yours? Quatre, trois, deux, un. Welcome to Calling All Humans, a co-resist podcast. Ah, you're, so you're, fluid. Yeah, well, I was hoping you'd do all the little taglines this week. Okay, cool. I can do them. Where arts, activism, and education meet. All right, Greg, how are you doing? Uh, I am doing very well, Danny. Yeah, welcome to this episode of Calling All Humans, being recorded at the PRSC Studios in Bristol, which, for those who don't know, the PRSC are the People's Republic of Stokescroft. They've done a lot of grassroots regeneration projects in the area. They've sort of managed to get themselves into a position where they look after certain walls for graffiti and street art. Uh, they've got lots of artist studios here. They've currently got the Bristol Cable based here, although I think they're moving on to uh, newer pastures soon. That's what I hear too. Yeah, PRSC, pretty fundamental around here. They've really kind of like changed the the whole aesthetic of the area and really helped. They, they often said, well, Hamilton House is the beating heart of Stokescroft, but PRSC is its soul. Nice. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, I was going to get into a whole uh, ontological argument there, but let's put a pin in that one. I think uh, anyone who has been to Bristol, if you've ever seen a piece of china with a kind of radical message on it, like uh, someone in the office earlier saying, unfuck the world, which... Uh, classy. Classy. Uh, They've actually got two very kind of well-known slogans or taglines, or I don't know, maybe they're, maybe they're the kind of like their innate philosophies of PRSC. Mm-hmm. One let Stokescroft develop as opposed to obviously come and fucking develop Stokescroft you corporate bastards uh, or and number two relentless optimism yes and number three 
You don't have to be mad to work around here. They don't have that one. Uh, although maybe they should. So this episode, we are going to be continuing with Calling All Humans European Road Trip. Um, we're going to hear a bit more from some of the interviews that Danny has gathered with his little microphone and his backpack around your little microphone in my little phone. Yeah, your miniaturized computer. And uh, yeah, there's been some good ones. I'm excited about this week. Yeah, even though it is Danny going off on his own, I don't get too jealous because it means he just sends me files and when he's abroad, I get to listen to his voice, just walk around listening to Danny's voice in my ear. <laughs> you love it. <laughs> Wandering through the woods up in Hebden Bridge. Yep, that's where I was this week, listening to the interview that uh, your, all the listeners are going to hear shortly. And that was conducted with JJ uh, from the ZAD de Notre Dame de Lens. Yep, so we heard a little bit from Issa and JJ last week, and now JJ is giving us a bit of a more in-depth interview around the origins of the ZAD, how it all started and what's happening right now. And I think what you'll probably notice uh, within the first couple of minutes is Danny asks for JJ to provide a little two-minute timeline, and actually what JJ offers is really eloquent, quite... um, but also just really fluid and contained narrative about the whole journey. And really that's why for this uh, episode, we just want to play the whole interview because I think he just speaks so well. And I know I got a lot of pleasure from listening to it. Yeah, it's nice. It's like opening up somebody's mind and it's just all kind of spilling out. Mm. (laughs) I think, yeah, I think he even says at the end, how's that for your two minute timeline? (laughs) Take a listen. No, not you. Not you. Your organization's terrible. Your organization's terrible. Let's go. Go ahead. Quiet. Quiet. Go ahead. She's she's asking a question. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. No, I'm not going to give you a question. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. Are you going to include the Congressional Black Caucus? Well, I would. I tell you what. Do you want to set up the meeting? Do you want to set up the meeting? No, no, no. Are they friends of yours? No, get it. Set up the meeting. I know some of them, but I'm sure. Let's go set up a meeting. I would love to meet with the Black Caucus. I think it's great. And we had the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. And President Xi was enjoying it. So, JJ. Um. We're here on the ZAD, and somewhere I've heard about for many years, wanted to come. If I'm really honest, deep down, I probably had an element of fear about coming here um, many years ago. Something interesting. Me too. Yeah. Could you, um, in a, as succinctly as possible, describe um, what the ZAD is for people that are listening that don't know? and then give us maybe a two-minute timeline of what's happened here. <laughs> two-minute timeline of a 50-year struggle. I know. Here I know. we go. Um, so the ZAD is... Uh, is it's, a, it's ZAD. It's a, it's a hacking of a planning term, which was zone à aménagement différé, which meant a zone where a planning thing would be deferred till later and something would be built for, for deferred development. Anyway, it's a planning term. And it got changed to Zona Defend, the zone to defend, because it's 4,000 acres of land, of wetland, uh, forest, fields, little fields of what we call a bockage, this kind of checkerboard of, of, of hedgerows, 222 kilometers of hedgerows, 
So it's it's four thousand acres of land that was earmarked to be an airport fifty years ago. And Notre Dame de Londres. It, uh, the airport of Notre Dame de Londres, which is one of the local villages. Uh, 20 minutes from Nantes it was be Nantes' new international airport um, it's a struggle that began with farmers and peasants uh, in uh, the 60s uh, because uh, basically during 68 uh, there was a very strong here uh, link between farmers and workers there was a kind of radical uh, communist Maoist uh, libertarian uh, movement uh, that brought farmers and workers together and uh, that movement was very strong in this region there was also very strong movements against nuclear power in this region uh, it's the only region in Brittany which doesn't have nuclear power stations in France they were all fought off by uh, local resistance uh, and so there was already a ground this was already an area that had resistance in the, the, in, the in the soil um, and in uh, the airport basically came onto the table, came off the table, there was the oil uh, crisis, and then uh, in 2000 it came back, and this time it was the green airport. It was a green airport for the hipster city of Nantes. Nantes is very similar to Bristol, it's an old slave port, uh, It's a, it was shipbuilding, it's, it's, it's very, very similar, it could even be twinned with Bristol. Um, and um, So the new green international airport was going to be built on this wetlands, which was already against EU law because of wetlands protection in Europe. And in uh, 2009, uh, a climate camp inspired by the British climate camps, people had come to King's North climate camp and then had been inspired and said, we're going to do a climate camp in France. And they decided to do it at Notre Dame de Lande. And there had already been an NGO that had been set up called ASIPA in 2000, which was made up of local people um, and local villagers who were doing a lot of technical kind of uh, information. And some people were frustrated with the fact that they weren't doing direct action and more creative forms of resistance. And those people were people who were living on the land in the houses that were emptying out because the houses were being expropriated, the farms were being expropriated. Less and less people were living on this land to enable the airport to be built. And these people who st- were still there and the historic farmers who had refused to sell their farms to the airport builders wrote a letter uh, and it said to defend a territory you need to inhabit it. They'd seen that it was becoming desertified and they were like no we need to inhabit this place to defend it. So they wrote this letter, open letter, and it was read out during the climate camp and people stayed after the climate camp. And that was the beginning of what we now call the ZAD, the Zone to Defend. And the slogan of the ZAD that emerged at that time was against the airport and its world. And so the whole idea was it's not just against this infrastructure, climate destroying, nourishing land, destroying wetlands, destroying infrastructure. It's also against the world that this infrastructure represents, the spread of the metropolis, the desire to control every aspect of our lives, domination, capitalism, patriarchy, etc. And so uh, it began as a kind of protest camp. And I, you know, I once described it in a piece of writing as a kind of rural Occupy. Um, Inspired by some of the British... uh, tree protests of the 90s and the anti-roads protests of the 90s and so on but it very soon became much more than a camp 
uh, and uh, in 2012, um, it became really, it started to become a, a, a way of saying we're blocking this infrastructure by saying no, we don't want the airport in its world. But yes, this is another way to live. Look, we can show different ways of organising. We're going to have our bakeries, our pirate radio stations, our, our weekly journal, uh, farms. You know, We're going to create... Uh, an alternative at the same time as we resist and we're going to resist the airport with an alternative forms of, of, of life and in 2012 they tried to evict uh, the airport uh, they brought thousands of cops uh, to evict, sorry, the, the ZAD to build the airport and it was resisted with a diversity resistance so you had everything from uh, people um, uh, non-violently blocking roads, you had uh, farmers with their tractors blocking motorways, you had uh, local uh, people from the villages, uh, you had people up the trees in tree houses, you had people throwing Molotov cocktails, you had barricades, you have every form of resistance and that diversity worked. If it had just been uh, conflictual resistance, um, they'd have just come in with bigger tanks and destroyed us. And if there'd just been so-called non-violent resistance, uh, they would have uh, moved everyone away very quickly with their tear gas and rubber bullets and explosive grenades, which is what the French police used. So, so the diversity was what saved this land, and in a way the diversity is what kept it really rich. So 2012 happened, and we'd always, the, always said that a month later we would come back and rebuild. And a month later, 40,000 people came back to rebuild uh, a hamlet, an incredible place with workshops and kitchens. And and I remember seeing kind of lines of, a kilometre long lines of people passing planks to rebuild because when they came in 2012, they'd already, they destroyed 12 farmhouses. So the rebuilding happened and the police left on that day and then they came back uh, uh, three days later, made the biggest mistake ever, to destroy what had been built by 40,000 people. And then it kicked off for three days. And it was very conflictual for three days. 40,000 people have just built something and taken the time and love and care to repair. Don't want to just see that just kind of blown apart three days later. And it created this huge movement. Suddenly you had 200 support committees around the country and and in other countries, some in Germany and Belgium, setting up support committees against the airport. So suddenly you had these three days of resistance on the ZAD after that, but then you had also people occupying town halls uh, and so on around the country. Uh, And it really became a movement, a a national movement at that point. Three days later, suddenly the troops left. The president, it turns out, realised that someone would probably be killed. Uh, Doctors who were in solidarity with us had set up the medic team, wrote to the president saying, you're going to kill someone. These are war wounds that we're seeing on people. Uh, uh, yeah. He decided politically it wasn't worth it. A year later, he killed a 21-year-old. Or he, his police forces killed a young 21-year-old on another ZAD because the term ZAD, Zone to Defend, became used at other uh, resistances against infrastructure projects. This was against an agricultural dam uh, that was going to destroy a, a zone. Um, and so... To cut a long story short, uh, the police left. They stayed for six months, very, very symbolically, in a couple of vans. And then they left the zone. And for six years, the police never came back. 
no judges ever came on the zone. Any attempt for a judge to come on the zone was blocked. No bailiffs came on the zone. Uh, there were no planning laws applied. We had six years, in a sense, as a parallel, uh, parallel to the state of these 4,000 acres where we had to deal with everything ourselves. What we think is that basically the state has said, we'll just leave them to rot. This kind of belief that people can't self-manage their lives, this belief that, you know, without the state there is chaos, without the state there is constant war between human beings. And and actually they were wrong, you know. Of course there was conflict and so on. Uh, it was messy. It was a kind of beautiful, messy utopia, um, you know, imperfect in the way that the best utopias are. Um, and uh, so during those six years, we, we developed a, a whole series of different uh, uh, structures. Uh, we had a conflict resolution structures, we had assemblies, uh, we had uh, uh, food produce, production, a lot of support by local farmers, a whole network of local farmers around. And that lasted six years. In 2016, uh, they kept saying, we're going to build the airport. And in 2016, uh, knowing that when the airport was relaunched in 2000, they were thinking of opening opening it in 2010. Mm. So we're on in 2016. Uh, In 2016, uh, they say, we're going to come back. Now, by this time, this huge composition had developed where you've got literally in assemblies... uh, uh, against the airport you've got uh, ex-mayoresses sitting next to anarchists sitting next to um, libertarian communists who have tractors and believe in communist agriculture to feed uh, the struggles using tractors sitting next to anarcho-primitivists who refuse to use any tractors on their land because they want to use permaculture sitting next to um, farmers who've refused to sell their dairy farms on the land and they've lived on the land for seven generations next to young vegans come from the city who are against all forms of animal exploitation so you've got this difference in the diversity which is incredibly rich incredibly conflictual but incredibly rich it was our strength and our weakness um and uh 2016 happens and they say uh january the government announces that they will come in autumn to build the airport because all the legal uh, cases are have gone. We made lots of um, uh, how do you say it in English uh, uh, when you go to court to uh, yeah, challenges. Yeah, we made lots of legal challenges uh, to the courts around species and uh, rare species and so on because there was a lot of work done with naturalists um, and uh, they'd all gone. And they could expropriate anything. They could come and take the farms, take the squats, because we had all squatted the land. Uh, and the local farmers said, yes, they're going to come. They're going to have to... I'm going to keep working. That's how I resist. I resist by keeping working. They're going to have to come and take me and my cows and everything. And so first, uh, on the 6th of January, we say, first, uh, this is your first warning. And we get uh, 20,000 people, 1,000 bicycles and 500 tractors on the main bridge that crosses the city of Nantes. Uh, the main bridge across the river and block the river uh, with a huge banquet for the whole day until we're pushed off by water cannons. Uh, the February next month we say, okay, second warning. And we managed to get 60,000 people to have a huge party on the motorway at exactly the point where we knew they would start the work for the airport because they would have to build a new motorway to go into the wetlands to bring all the material to build the airport. 60,000 people on a huge street party. 
and that second warning. And then the government go, hmm, we'll do a referendum, trying to split the movement between the democratic, ngo more liberal part, and the radicals, because they had learned from the uh, fight in Germany against the uh, Stuttgart 21 project, where they had done a referendum, and the vote had been, yes, we'll build it. And all the, all the liberals had gone, oh, okay, that's democracy, we're not going to fight anymore. It didn't work. They... Uh, they organised the referendum in a local area knowing that it would win if they'd done it nationally they would have lost they won, 53%, 55% can't remember and the movement said fuck you, we're still resist, resist, there was this huge assembly where you watched the results coming live on on the TV and, and, and you just had hundreds of people just going resist, resist, resist you know, farmers, old people young people and <clears throat> And then we, to top it that year, we did a whole series of trainings. We trained 800 people over eight weekends in how to protect the, this, this land, uh, how to do affinity groups. We did this big kind of orientation course where people had to take objects from one place to another, pretend to be, um, by, while being chased by fake cops, and then have to go, be arrested and go to fake prison and know how it felt, and, and using our radio techniques. So we had the pirate radio and T- CBs and all these things. And then we had a ritual in October disguised as a demonstration where where 20,000 people came and put their sticks in the ground uh, and there were shepherd sticks uh, from an old symbol from another struggle putting the sticks in the ground uh, I remember this call out and it, it, mm. people came from all over and wide, yeah, yeah, yeah. all over the countries yeah and they put their stick in the ground and made a pledge to come back and get the stick if the government came to build the airport and 20,000 people put the sticks in the ground, 40,000 people came, we had a big party. At the same time, we raised this huge barn, a uh, beautiful medieval barn that had been built with medieval uh, woodworkers. Um, and at that point, I think the government said, oh, we haven't even put the first shovel of work, and this is all happening. This is not, you know, it's, we're not going to be able to build this airport without using uh, so much violence that will probably kill people. Um, and so the socialist government, it was a socialist government airport, green airport, uh, uh, knew that there was elections coming up, and they just just said, okay, we're not gonna, we're not gonna come. And under our thing, we'll wait for the elections. Elections happened. Macron was brought in. Six months, he uh, gets an airplane pilot, an agricultural expert, and a public order expert to do a three, a six month inquiry. And at the end of the inquiry, so here we are speaking here on January the 13th in 2020. So this is 2018. On the 17th of January, uh, the Prime Minister comes on live TV and everyone's watching the TV. We don't know what he's going to say. Uh, although we he'd sent a Twitter to the pro-airport people just minutes before saying that he was going to abandon the airport. And so we did kind of know. But he went on TV and said... Um, the airport, the conditions are not right for building the airport, but the illegal occupants of this outlaw zone, which is what they called it, some members of, uh, were president of the region once said it was more dangerous to come to the ZAD than to go to Mosul in Iraq. So this outlaw zone would have to be evicted, would be evicted. We would have to leave. He said we would have to leave by the spring. And if we went, didn't leave, we would be leave by force. And so, to cut a long story short, we went into negotiations with the state. 
and then those negotiations were we were clearly saying with the movement with notably with the farmers we had made a six points for the future of the zad we'd said we'd man- made a a document which was like an an act of magic to say because there will not be an airport these are the six points for the future of the zad we'd done that in 2014 and this uh document had like how we would run it as commons once the airport project had been abandoned and we tried to push for that and they refused utterly they said no no commons no it's going to go back to normal back to agricultural back to you know private property you know once one of the elites had said the it's not a public order it's the 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 zad is not a danger of the public order of the republic it's a danger for private property so you know the real notion of, of uh, keep this this notion of private property threatening capitalism yeah, 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 yeah. and so uh in april on the 8th i can't remember the date now uh 8th of april i think 2018 so in the spring uh, they come with the biggest police operation since May 68. That's now been talked by the Yellow Jackets, but at the time it was the biggest police operation since May 68 with tanks, APC tanks, uh, drones, 4,000 police. Uh, they fire 11,000 tear gas grenades and explosive grenades at us over three days, destroy a 30 houses, a uh, third of the Zad. Incredibly violent, uh, lots and lots of injuries. Uh, it's a total revenge by the state. It's the state saying... The state, you know, David Graeber has written this. He says, you know, the state doesn't mind if you have demonstrations and actions and pickets. And What they really hate is that you show that they are useless, that they are just a joke and that you can live without them. And when you show the state that, then you are really in danger and they'll take a revenge. And that's exactly what happened. They destroy 30 houses... And they suddenly uh, bring uh, the prefect, the head of the state uh, locally, brings out a piece of paper on, on live on TV and goes, OK, ceasefire. Uh, now you can sign uh, as individuals to have rights to stay, those who are there. And those who sign can, will have a temporary right to stay. And so big discussions, assemblies, and the you know people are going doing these meetings where you're covered in tear gas. You've been fighting the cops all day because then then they would leave at night, and then you're there in an assembly trying to make this decision about legalization or not. Um, decision is to to go for this, but to hack their form to try and do it as a commons. But by hacking their form, sixty three of the seventy living spaces because at its peak the ZAD was about seventy living spaces with about four hundred people living in it. 63 of the 70 living spaces uh, sign uh, to be protected or and seven don't and they come back with tanks a couple of weeks later and they destroy the seven that haven't signed which is a very clear thing that you know we now know that there was a big uh, split in the state uh, even when they started the operation we don't know I can't remember the name of the operation the operation in 2012 was called Operation Caesar which was hilarious because this is the land of Asterix um, but uh, that cool. operation, they started it, and the gendarmerie, as a pure revenge, the fact that we'd kicked the cops off in 2012, wanted to destroy everything. And the state uh, didn't. The state was like, no, no, we can't destroy everything. It's going to be too violent, and we need to, uh, we need to keep something. And so we, since that those days in 2018, we there's been an, it's been what we call the the self defence bureaucracy. So it's defending ourselves with bureaucracy, using paper as barricades, 
rather than uh, tires and trees and hay bales and tractors um, and boats. There was a barricade made of boats even before uh, before Extinction Rebellion, actually, funnily enough. And, um, uh, it just happened there was a boat. <laughs> but uh, So that's what's happened, and we've now got more land than we had before. Uh, for the movement, from the movement that we can run as a commons and we are running with an assembly of commoners uh, but the housing hasn't been dealt with and that's what the struggle right now as we speak is all about and as I, as we speak in our we're speaking in the caravan and uh, if you look out of the door of the caravan you see a, a lighthouse uh, we're 50 kilometres from the sea uh, but the lighthouse was built um, on the place where they wanted to put the control tower. The idea was we don't want a control tower, we want to welcome people to port, we want to show them hope and show them the dangers of capitalism. Uh, and the lighthouse is linked to the library because we are inspired by mythical uh, cities such as Alexander and the idea of mythical places. And the library, in the library as we speak, are uh, about seven or eight architects and urbanists who live, many of whom live here, some are here just to support, who are uh, doing planning applications and when, uh, because on the 17th of January uh, is a, a big celebration of the abandonment of the airport and so those planning applications are going to be put in as a kind of act of another bureaucracy campaign kind of tool uh, and underneath the library there are people organising a ritual uh, which we'll also be doing uh, to protect the new houses that are being built and the houses that are being built, even on the ruins of the houses that were destroyed in 2012. And in fact, we're going to rebuild a house on one of the houses, the first house that was destroyed for the airport in 2012. And we'll do this ritual underneath it to protect it. And meanwhile, the uh, the these planning applications are going in, 25 planning applications, all in one go for the little village. Um, and and we'll see. I mean, funny enough, the prefect yesterday in a in a interview said uh, that uh, and I probably should quote it properly and I haven't got it on me but said that you know that, that, that 20 years ago ecology was a utopia and that we need utopias and that meant you know talking about the ZAD so the same you know same people that came to try and destroy it for an airport in 2012 then tried to destroy it because they wanted to return the law of order are now saying it's a, it's a utopia it's also an opening for green capitalism of course but um that was way longer than two minutes. I'm really sorry. No, uh, that's really... That just went on to automatic. Really <laughs> incredible to have <laughs> such a kind of, like, slice of knowledge and experience and to hear, you know, the story of what's happened and have a much more detailed sort of landscape of of kind of what's been growing here. And, and really, it is a lighthouse. It's something which, you know, people across Europe look towards and and go, OK, this is possible. You know, we need to build this new world. And um, I think an important thing that we need to do now is to sort of share these stories because I think a lot of people believe that when the eviction happened two years ago, that that was the end of the ZAD. And actually, you know, there's nothing here anymore. And it's simply not true. I went for a wonderful walk with Easter. And to look around at this beautiful landscape and to, you know, really see the diversity. I mean, we're trudging through puddles and rivers which you know sort of ran through forests that were supposed to be pathways you know it really is a a wetland and the incredible kind of diversity of species whether it's the trees or the newts or the 
salamanders I heard about coming out at night and you know it, it, it it's special and it shows that people can live in harmony with nature and perhaps you know some of the, the, the other stories that I'd you know heard from speaking to people yesterday and the day before were that actually the reason why some of this is possible is because the humans are here protecting it mm-hmm. and that's a real story of hope mm-hmm. because we are faced with images from all around the world of the destruction that we cause but to actually think of ourselves and to be able to conceive ourselves as a regenerative species not just for humans themselves but for the whole biosphere and for the planet is um is somewhere where we we, we need to share that vision now i think and that's something that the, mm-hmm. that zad is is helping to to promote and it's interesting you say that you know that it was um you thought it didn't exist. I mean, in a way that you know, all battles are stories, are battles of stories, storytelling battles, and the story that the state wanted to stay after the two thousand eighteen evictions, that you literally had the the general, the 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 no, the minister of interior, I think it was, who said, "You will never hear of the Zad and ever again," because you know it had been front page news for years. You know, every now, every time there was something happening here, it was front page news. And he's like, you'll never hear uh, you know, anyone talk of the Zad again. And that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to make it impossible to believe this story, that you, you know, that, that, that this place of, of hope. They had to erase it. And now that, that's the story we have to do. And that's, that's your battleground. And that's the battleground telling, the, telling story. the story. And on the 17th, you have um, French radio here, don't you? To so we have the equivalent of, you know, we'll have loads of media. We'll have, we've got the equivalent of the Radio 4 Today programme, national morning programme uh, that, that will be uh, on, in the library uh, next to the lighthouse uh, running their them you know their their station from there uh and we will have this banquet because food is key here it's france and we'll have a banquet uh and we'll serve 500 people uh in an incredible luxurious four course banquet uh which will be followed by breton dancing and uh, a night very long long night of fesnos which is breton for the night festival uh, which are a lot of uh, circular dances, which are old druidic dances as well, which bring us back to magic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, that's sort of where I'd like to go just to finish this conversation in in the realms of the the magic, the work that has gone on, sort of alongside this struggle and precursing it as well. You know, the sometimes I don't really know how to describe um, what you what you do when I talk to people it you know are you artists are you um chaos magicians are you um you know kind of these incredible um creative scientists that are experimenting with new utopias you know how how would you describe these experiments and um endeavors i don't know i think it's you know uh, maybe maybe it's important not to label these things as 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 things uh but to think more i mean i don't know in the end i think it's just living life uh in a way that makes sense and to me living life in a way that makes sense at the moment is to live a life which enables more forms of life to continue to live uh and for me that involves acts of creation 
but it also acts in, involves acts of resistance and I think the thing that is for me the DNA of of social transformation is made up of two strands and one is to always uh, resist and the other is always to provide alternatives at the same time and not separate these movements because I think when you separate the movement of resistance uh, from the movement alternatives the movement alternatives can easily become because the people forget who the enemy is it becomes another laboratory for green capitalism uh, and if you just do resistance you burn out you're not sustainable you just get angry uh, and so, you know, I think what's beautiful here, and what was, you know, the same thing at the climate camps in the UK, is this, you know, this DNA of, 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 of the yes and the no, uh, which of course we also learned from the Zapatistas. Let's talk to this thinking and talking on, on mic. Yeah. Oh, what do the thinking and talking on mic? At the right at the same time. Danny, revolutionary podcast maker. He likes to think and talk on the mic at the same at time. the same time. Wow. So that was a really great interview with John Jordan uh, or JJ uh, that Danny conducted for us. Uh, it was a really just brilliant, extensive overview of the whole movement and. I think maybe just as a bit of an outro to this episode, it'd be really, I'd be really happy just to hear how you found the trip, Danny. And maybe, because I know you've wanted to visit the ZAD for many years now, and maybe just some of the lessons you've learned and also what you think others could learn from that movement in other struggles around the world or other movements, uh, both in Europe or specifically in the UK. You know, what really stood out for you? Oh, well, it's somewhere where I've wanted to visit for a long time. I mean... If I'm honest, I think that I had a sort of hesitancy that was based in a, a fear that not knowing what the ZAD is, you know, the seeing the imagery of the, well, the they weren't evicted, but the attempted evictions, you know, when the, mili the military police, the riot police were there and, you know, all of the violence that the state really kind of brought down upon the, upon the site, it, it you know, it's definitely kind of like had doubts in my mind about kind of like oh is it a safe place to go um until obviously two years ago they got that incredible decision that the airport is not going to be built and now it's you know it's a very different energy there i think to how it was in the in that period particularly when jj spoke between 2012 and 2018 where it was completely autonomous and it's 
I think one important thing is that it's still there. Mm. They won. You know, and actually people are still living there and they're working really incredibly hard to legitimise legally a lot of the buildings and a lot of the activity that's happening there and they really want to preserve as much of the incredible and innovative uh, projects as, as possible. And to kind of think about how they won could be really beneficial to other campaigns and movements, not just in France but or in the UK, but all, all across Europe. Because it was a real combination. They had the legal side of things, which delayed it as long as possible through the courts before you know, they could come in with the bailiffs. They had, crucially, farmers you know, who represent an incredible block in France anyway and, you know, are kind of famed for their levels of kind of resistance and protest. But and hold quite a power just in the very nature of being farmers. Huge in France, yeah. It's very different to the UK, but also the machinery that they hold, you know, is their, their instruments of protest. You know, it's really fantastic to kind of see these tractors. So, yeah, you have farmers, you have... Um, the local residents, uh, historical residents, people that lived there and were living there, um, making their life there, you know, they hold a lot of power in themselves because they own the houses or they rented the houses and they were being asked to move on. And then you have the activists that came in specifically to resist this airport and express solidarity and, you know, to kind of pick that fight strategically because it's one that they believe that they could win. And what they did do was they always planned for victory and that's what I think a lot of campaign groups don't do what's it going to look like when we win to have that mentality and to do that strategic thinking so that when the opportunity gets handed to you you're ready to run with it and it's not just something like oh my gosh what do we do now and it kind of all kind of fails because the structures that exist during a struggle and resistance and activism um, generally kind of tends to kind of require a lot more um, divergent thinking, that creativity. Well, sometimes you really do have to kind of rein it in and target it quite specifically when it comes to the things that are required for legal, legitimate in the eyes of the state existence. Yeah, and so you were talking when you turned up there that you weren't quite sure what you would encounter in terms of the mood. And I think as JJ mentions in that interview, uh, the camp, well, what are we calling them? Uh, not the camp, but the... The site, the, oh, yeah. the zone. So I think as JJ mentions during that interview, uh, the zone, there was one stage where they were offered a choice of legitimising their stay there, at least for a short period, and uh, they were having asked to sign a piece of paper to agree and to actually register uh, their space. And for the 3% of people who didn't, literally the tank, and bulldozers came along and just took down their small buildings and you know that really is quite a intimidating show of force you know it's deliberately just um, quick and powerful and I suppose that's after last episode and we were look, really looking at the role of art and activism and how those two overlap um, I suppose it's thinking how uh, what kind of atmosphere art helps create in a camp you know because you talk about how the farmers have power but then as you say artists possibly have this capacity of imagination that maybe in those times of desperation or concern about the sheer power and violence of the state maybe that's where you actually need some people with just this kind of 
relentless optimism. I'll say that since we're in the PRSC studios. And as you say, that capacity to be like, what's it going to be like when we win? Maybe that, could you, could you still get a sense of that role of the artist within the site when you went to visit? Oh, it's still, it's, yeah, huge in abundance, the creativity that exists uh, even now. And um, the, I think the role of art and artists has been fundamental to its success because they've provided these symbols of hope and symbols of unity and opportunities to um, work together in different ways. So I didn't know what I was going to encounter, but I didn't have that fear anymore because, you know, that, that kind of point had passed and um, I knew that it was a, a, a space that was a lot more accessible now. And when I got to the site, the first thing that you see, even pitch black, is this incredible lighthouse. Mm. I mean, JJ spoke about it in the interview, but it towers above the farmhouse and um, it's there kind of like looking out across the fields and I'm sure it had a you know a practical purpose in when it came to um, you know defending the site, so you could see for miles around. But you know he spoke about that beacon of hope that they wanted to kind of create, and it and it really does feel like that. It's like this is a, a special thing to kind of find in the middle of a a field. And there's something symbolic about a tower shining light, I suppose. Absolutely. Into the darkness. The act of creating that would have been no mean feat. It's a, it's kind of, it's a piece of engineering. You know, it's not just a, a kind of a creative doodle. It's, mm. it's something which would have required some knowledge to construct, and some great skill as well. And I think that, you know, these projects mean that people kind of come together with a shared purpose, and you know, they leave something behind which you know carries that image and carries that memory. And um, the Zad is is full of those things. It's an incredible building that's being made with old medieval techniques and in a medieval style, a wooden structure which is their uh, workshop space. Um, and that is a, is a, that would not look out of sight on any heritage site. You know, it's, mm. it's really fantastic. And that was a, a, a real masterpiece, I think, kind of using the local timbers to create something like that. Here, it's not possible to dissociate a question of agriculture, question of production, with the question of the struggle and of the fight and of the organization of the movement against the airport. In 2008, there were this call from Les Habitants qui résistent, Resisting Inhabitants, who said it's easy to destroy an empty territory, so that's why we call everyone from France to come here, to come and live here, to help us to fight. This creates the movement of occupation, and in the movement there is a collective process around agriculture and production. The aim is not only to have link and solidarity with farmers and inhabitants around, not only to have a life which is deeply rooted in the territory and a better understanding of the bocage, but uh, mainly a strategy uh, to occupy and communize and share the land. 
For most of the farmers who refuse to sign an agreement and refuse to leave their lands, for them to keep on producing, keep on taking care of their animals is a way of resistance and struggle. Well, so I've got a question for you, Danny. And um, maybe I'll just let this person wander by outside our makeshift studio in the PRSC. Can you hear that, listeners? Clompity, clompity, clomp. Oh, I recognise that voice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I've got a question for you, Danny. Uh, you know, we often like to look at these things, uh, different projects or individuals working around the world, partly as a source of inspiration, but also to see what lessons we can learn and I think from the bits I've heard what I'm interested to know is your opinion on whether you think the Zad is strong because of what they made it over time or whether it really just goes back to that beginning of a common cause between quite a diverse demographic of people so the farmers the local residents but also the artists and the eco-warriors that really brought them together do you think it's been such a success just because it did have that they were already joined by a cause and however much you might bring these tactics into other movements around the world unless you actually have that unifying thing to fight against and to motivate you can you ever really replicate what you saw at the Zad? Wow I don't <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I don't and go couldn't ever be replicated in you know as a carbon copy for sure but a lot of the lessons can be applied elsewhere and that idea that you know is it one or the other obviously I'm going to say it's both together but the reason why both are so important is because you had that existing community and somebody with the foresight to do a call out and bring in you know the activists the creatives the kind of other people to kind of hold space and resist because they said you can't fend somewhere that doesn't have um, a community mm. and so they recognized that you know the place was emptying out and they wrote a letter uh, inviting people to come and resist and you know that's that's a beautiful act in itself an invitation you know clearly stating your purpose and values and just seeing what comes back what will the universe bring and it brought you know a climate camp or two climate camps if you you know go into the details of what happened that that year and people deciding to stay and you know incredible um things that stemmed from that you know you open up a whole new series of connections and the seven degrees of separation you know between everybody on the planet kind of has a few more links to it so you've been wanting to go visit the Zad for some time, Danny. When was it that you first... That was far too like. Tell me a bit when you first... <laughs> so, Danny, you've been wanting to visit the Zad for some time. Uh, what motivated that? And did it live up to everything you always wanted it to be? Oh, yeah, it totally, you know, it, it was like... I wouldn't say it exceeded my expectations, but it was... Everything that I wanted it to be, of course, yeah. It, because because they won, because mm. it's still there. You know, even though all these years that I didn't actually make it, it's still there now. So anybody that wants to go, I just thoroughly recommend it, go. It's um, You don't get to see many places like this in Western Europe. 
And just maybe that's quite useful for any listeners who are interested. What what was it like as an experience? Like, were they welcoming? Did they have quite an easy system for giving a little tour round, or do you need to kind of just find your own way around and introduce yourself? Well, that's a really good question. I don't know because I obviously knew JJ already. VIP backstage. <laughs> they have a bunkhouse. A bunkhouse. Yeah, yeah, and there were other guests there, so presumably, you know, they just wrote to them and mm-hmm. you know they kind of arranged it that way around but um certainly they they have been very kind of used to taking people um in to sort of see the see the site and volunteer for a while and i think it was um actually in last episode's interview i heard there was they do a bit of a shared community meal is that right there on a friday i didn't get to experience it but it's legendary yeah, yeah. there's an incredible chef that has this um restaurant and um yeah it, it, apparently that once you've eaten there it's you don't get up <laughs> it's just yeah. it's just supposed to be the most amazing uh, culinary and um, social experience oh. and on a friday evening and so yeah if you are in the area go on a friday and where did you stay were you camping or no it's no it was in the bunkhouse yeah, yeah. and nice. there was actually an anthropologist there who was from america and just doing some research around um, intentional communities and mm-hmm. then there were two artists there that were helping prepare a ceremony for the festival for the 17th the two-year anniversary um since the of the victory of the victory so it was um yeah it was nice to be around other people and lots of architects a whole team of architects that were desperately beavering away trying to secure all of their designs and everything for the planning application I think the deadline was that week so you know they were working like 24 7 they came out with like little bleary eyes <laughs> for food every now and again so i suppose that really is the next stage is it's how can you just build that legacy and make sure that not only those that are staying get to stay there and stay there well but actually how do you share these messages these lessons learned how do you welcome other people in yeah. to experience it well i mean there's been a couple of films they are french language but there are um, plans to uh, certainly subtitle those films and maybe there needs to be an English film English language film made as well um, just to kind of bring it to a wider audience and in terms of the lessons yeah they you know JJ and Issa through the laboratory for insurrectionary imagination they do give kind of workshops and lectures and things like that but there's a book as well uh, and a graphic novel um, and um, you know there are resources which are being shared but I think it's really important that we we do learn these lessons and we do take them forward because if we don't, then we're not going to win elsewhere. I think one thing that I would like to say is why it's so interesting for me is because I hear a lot of critique around anarchy, you mm-hmm. know, and about, oh, nothing would ever get done, nothing would ever be organised, nothing sure. is possible that way. And actually, this experiment, it not just was possible, but you know some incredible things happened through that way of organizing and that way of living that for me it shows that well you don't really need the state and that's probably part of the danger if you certain if you show that the state doesn't really Mm. need you sorry that you don't really need the state then the state don't like looking stupid and uh you know that's when they come and evict you and certainly popular media media will often have you believe that Anarchy is meant to be this idea of just chaos, but actually, if you have a visitor 
anarchist community or anything it's actually a whole load of systems and different governance structures that ensure that it's actually quite ordered but just very fair and equal with no overalling overall power in charge yeah and then some you know work to you know different capacities as well you know some of them are quite rigid and some of them are much more loose and you know this had a great feel to it it was somewhere where you could actually live a life you know very very kind of peacefully and in harmony with other neighbours and people that kind of come through. Anyone who ever dreamed could look at me and know I dream of you. Anyone who ever dreamed lighthearted do you want to mention any excuse to play more songs <laughs> um, anything european you want playing any music they have out there did you come across any groups they have i saw some amazing chickens you saw some amazing chickens <laughs> <laughs> i saw the best looking chickens i've ever seen the best looking <laughs> <laughs> what, what makes a chicken good looking we just look very healthy and oh, okay, sh- shiny yeah. feathers, and they're very happy and like they they, they were liberated, <laughs> liberated chickens. Um, does wonders for the skin. Liberation. It does do. <laughs> um, so somebody wear slippers on the outside of their shoes. Okay, well there's <laughs> there's <laughs> some clear things wrong with that. I mean, <laughs> all right, you're you're an anarchist or whatever, but that is. Completely wrong. No, it makes you want no, sense. No, no, listen, no, listen, no, listen. No, I'm going to tell you already why it doesn't make sense. Because oh. a slipper is for comfort on the foot, so you'd wear it on the inside. No. A shoe is to protect from the dirt. If you reverse them or invert, it's just pointless and ridiculous. If you're a busy working person and you come from like a muddy yard and you come into the house, you can't be bothered to do all your laces oh, or whatever. Okay. So you just slip your boots into these house slippers. Um, and wander around and the floor doesn't get muddy. Yeah, but I still don't... I, I mean, I see what you're saying, fair enough, but, you know, normally people just have those, um, you know, like swimming shower cap things they put on their shoes. Don't put them in slippers. I mean, it was, it was epic. Yeah, so that was that was a good thing I saw there. Uh, <laughs> what else did I see? Um, Good-looking chickens. Good-looking chickens. Slippers on the outside of shoes. Really well-organised um, kit shed. Kit yeah. shed? What kind of kit? For all sorts of kind of um, protests and um, oh, yeah. manifestations, yeah. Uh, so a bit like the PRSC where we're recording today. With uh, they have their own kind of setup for making signs and banners and yeah, sort of ready-made. This stations. was incredible. They have like a trailer 
where you can load onto it in these different sections like tables, chairs, PA system, all of these kind of like culinary um, sort of like uh, boxes for the, you know, the pans, the ingredients, whatever, the stoves. And it just all kind of like slots together like a transformer. You mean a literal kitchen? You're not yeah. talking about a metaphorical like a, cooking no, up a protest? Actually, okay. in both senses of the word, Greg. Uh, very <laughs> impressive. Very impressive. Well, I think that's it for this episode. Uh, we did want to just direct people both to coresist.org and also to visit the ZAD website, which is zad.nadir.org. So that's zad.nadir.org. Any last thoughts, Danny? Let's win. Let's win. <laughs> let's just, yeah, let's uh, kind of take this inspiration. Quite used to losing at the moment. No, <laughs> no. I'm up for it. Yeah. I've just seen it and I'm like, yes, let's get some of that. Yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting um, thing when the state, the government, the local council, whoever it is who, who has authority pursue a course of action which you know you you object to you think that it's wrong everything in your being tells you that it's wrong and something clicks and you go I have to act and so many times in my life I've followed that knowing that we're not going to be ultimately successful and success as we've talked about in previous podcasts might come in different ways but to actually achieve the objective set out at the beginning to not have an airport there to preserve the, that marshland those bockages and that community is a really kind of phenomenal thing and i'm up for more winning and just to show that you can be sustainable and you can live in harmony without the state as you said before so that's the end of calling all humans european road trip we are looking at possible we're we not going to do any more well, not until somebody I've goes got, abroad. I've got loads of uh, loads of interviews. Oh, what, do you have more? Yeah. All oh, right, I didn't know that. I just l heard those three in the same. I've not sent you any more, that's all. <gasps> You've got more. I've got more. Ah. I've, got, I've got one absolutely smashing one. Okay, so we might be extending our <laughs> Calling All Humans European Road Trip. Uh, otherwise, we also have a few more ideas in the pipeline for... Oh, yes. Um, but for now, that's us done. See you later. Have fun. Bye.